Hi there, I'm Mikey. Hi, I'm Corey. And we're with the Retro Renegades Pop Culture Power Hour. And we are the official podcast partners of Grand Comic Fest. Grand Comic Fest is going on in Grand Island, Nebraska, April 21st through 23rd. Dude, I'm so excited for all the celebrities that they're going to have this year. They've got a great list of celebrities this year. Oh, yeah. And you know what? We're going to get to know those celebrities right here on this show. Yes, we are. So, we want to thank you guys for joining us. Please check out Grand Comic Fest on Facebook to get all the information. Or, you can check out the show notes. Get your tickets. Meet us in Grand Island. We'll be in Podcast Alley. But right now, we're going to get to know one of these great celebrity guests. Because we got to interview them. Yes, we did. So, please enjoy this show. And we'll see you in Grand Island. Grand Comic Fest. See you guys soon. Hey, what's up? It's Mikey. Hey, this is Corey. And we're back here with Retro Renegades Pop Culture Power Hour, the Grand Comic Fest Guest Spotlight Series. So the purpose of this uh, series is to let you get to know the celebrities we are interviewing. And maybe you can come out and have something to talk to them about when you see them at Grand Comic Fest 5. That's uh, April 21st through 23rd in Grand Island, Nebraska. Yes, it is. And as you know, we will be there. We will. We'll be in, uh, what, Podcast Alley. We're going to be in Podcast Alley. But these celebrities will be there to meet you, to take pictures, to sign autographs, and just answer your questions. So uh, without further ado, what do you say we get into uh, this episode's featured guest? I'm ready, dude. All right, here we go. With the uh, with the, the next uh, guest spotlight for Grand Comic Fest, um, Grand Comic Fest of course is in Grand Island, Nebraska. It's going to be April twenty first through twenty third, and today we are joined by Wyatt Weed. He's a writer, he's a producer, a special effects artist, actor. Your your list of things that you do is is quite uh, quite numerous and quite uh, impressive, actually. Yes, it is. So how you doing today, Wyatt? I'm doing really, really good. I'm, I'm doing really good. Um, yeah, the list of credits goes on for a while just because I've been doing this a while. But also, I've wanted to do so many things. You know, I've, I've always loved making movies. I've always loved special effects. I wanted to be an actor. So luckily, I've been at it long enough that I've been able to do all of these things at one point in time, sometimes all at once. So... <laughs> And that's you know coming from where we, where we do uh, I do a bit of a bit, bit of acting and writing and we both do special effects so we understand you you put on a lot of hats sometimes when you're on set <laughs> yeah yeah well especially especially with the low budget stuff I mean with the low budget stuff you can you can try to assign a job to each individual person and have one individual person do that particular job but at the end of the day. If somebody doesn't show up or you don't have enough money, you do it. Whether it's sweeping the floor or filling blood bags or, you know, doing makeup or, you know, whatever it is. Picking up the rental vehicle. Whatever it is, you will do it in order to get the film done. So I think we've done all that. Yeah, I think we have. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because my experience ranges from um, my wife and I are wrapping up 
a film, a feature film project that it's literally just she and I. We're making a feature film project that she and I. I don't think the budget. We're going to have to try to crack a thousand dollars on the budget for this film. Oh wow! So that's like that's the low end, and then the, but the high end. I think the most expensive thing I ever worked on was Mission Impossible Two, which back in the back in like two thousand, that was like a hundred and thirty-five million dollar film. So my experience ranges from a thousand dollars. Two hundred and thirty-five million. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. That's insane numbers. So yeah, that's insane numbers, and it's only gotten more expensive since. I mean, I, what, Avatar two. I think I heard three hundred and fifty million, three hundred and seventy-five million. So yeah, oh, wow. it's, they've only gotten crazier since. So oh my god. So why don't you tell us what what lit the spark to get you on this path? What what inspired you to even? think about being an actor or a, a, a writer or, you know, where did you start and what did you start with? You know, uh, I'm lucky in that my, my parents loved movies. So from the time I was old enough to go to the movies, I was going to the movies. So I actually remember seeing 2001 A Space Odyssey in the theater. I think I was maybe four years old when I saw it. Um, my mother claims that my first movie, which I don't remember apparently, she says I went to the drive-in with her and my dad and saw The Blob, Steve McQueen, The Blob. Mm. Oh, the that's, one of my favorite, that's one of my favorite classic monster movies. Yeah, she says that was my first film, and I believe her, I just don't remember it. The first one I remember is 2001. But, you know, for the longest time, I wanted to do what lots of kids do. I wanted to be an astronaut, I wanted to be a truck driver, whatever. But I was always fascinated with movies, and I got obsessed in the 70s with special effects, mainly King Kong. Because, believe it or not, there was a time when this stuff wasn't all available. Now you can stream just about anything you can think of 24-7. Back in the early 70s, you know, I had to wait until King Kong came on television, and then if it was on at midnight... I wasn't going to be able to stay awake. So I was obsessed with King Kong. I bought books. I studied stop motion animation. And then, you know, there was a string of things that happened through the 70s, like Jaws came out. And even though I wasn't ready to be a filmmaker yet, I was fascinated with the making of that. Like, at that age, I could look at that film and go, wow, they've got a boat in the ocean, they've got actors in the ocean, and they've got to have a camera in the ocean. And they've got to have a mechanical shark, and it's all got to work together. Wow, that's amazing and complicated. But the thing that did it, I mean, the thing that cinched it, and you can probably see this coming, is uh, Star Wars. You know, Star Wars hit in 77. I was 13 years old. I was already a fan of movies and special effects. And Star Wars hit in 77. By spring of 1978, I had a Super 8mm film camera. And I was making movies, you know, I was making movies in the garage. I was recreating scenes from Star Wars. I was doing stop motion. I was doing all my own movies. And from there, it was like a steady pursuit. I, I went to acting school. Uh, I went to film school. I volunteered in cable television. And then, you know, at a certain point in the 80s, I just got fed up with working locally. And I went to Los Angeles and just dove in head first. Um, things are different now because back then, if you wanted to make feature films, if you wanted to work on real movies, you kind of needed to be in New York or Los Angeles. It wasn't really happening. Like I could work on 
you know, local TV commercials here in the Midwest, but I couldn't work on feature films. Now with digital, everybody's making movies everywhere, so that's really, really cool. But back then it was all about Los Angeles. And I had this naive idea that I would go out there and act my way into directing. You know, you know, like Robert Redford or Warren Beatty, you know those guys. And once I got out there, I realized, God, it's just hard enough to work and pay the rent. And I had some success with acting as, you know, I'll be at the convention, you know, you guys know this, I had some success with acting, but I started doing more behind the scenes work, which paid better and moved faster. And the next thing I know, I was writing and producing and directing. And I came back around to the acting years later because I could. You know, I got to a position where I could put myself in my own films. I got a little older. I kind of developed the character look. So people started asking me to be in their films. And, you know, it's kind of like a whole second career now. Um, I came back to the Midwest. I came back to St. Louis. And I've been working here nonstop and having a blast. And so that's that's pretty much my story in a nutshell. So l- let, me, let me ask you. Do you do you prefer to be in front of the camera or behind the camera? Which is which is more exciting for you? You know, if somebody put a gun to my head tomorrow and said pick, I'd say behind the camera just because you know, if you have a specific vision or an idea for something being behind the camera and you can direct and edit and storyboard and produce and do all these things, you can control the vision better. But I got. But acting is fun. Acting is a whole lot of fun. Um, this project that my wife and I are doing, we're calling it a COVID feature, and COVID's pretty much passed at this point. But during the shutdown, we got really frustrated because everything went away, yeah. and we had just moved into this big old house. There's a town here in Illinois called Alton, and Alton has a reputation for being one of the most haunted cities in America. Now, our house is decidedly not haunted, but it's a big, you know, 130-year-old house. You know, it has a lot of potential for scary, and the first couple of months we were here, there was a lot of unexplained things, and it inspired a lot of stuff. And so when COVID got bad and nobody was doing anything, one day she and I were sitting talking, and we're like, let's just make a movie. Well, what's it going to be? Well, it'll be me. I'll be the actor. I'm a guy in a haunted house. I move into this haunted house, and crazy stuff starts happening and I'll act in it you shoot it we have all the equipment let's just do it and my wife being game she's like okay cool and we just dove in and started doing it now 30 40 days of shooting later we're editing the feature and you know hopefully we'll be able to show it to people later this year so um so that's been a lot of fun because we're creating and we're having fun and we're shooting the movie but I'm in front of the camera as well so i mean that's really the best of both worlds right there i'm i'm making a film and i'm in the film at the same time that's really fun that's awesome so we can we can touch on several different angles here you know as far as your career goes um since you're more in, you know you're, you're more uh, excited you said about being behind the camera let's maybe uh, we'll, we'll start there with some of your okay. uh some of your, your things that you've, you've written and some of the things that you have done visual effects and special effects on, your director, sure. cinematographer. Um, sure. So I, I see here that you, uh, you did some visual effects on Muppets from Space. What, yes. Okay, 
what was the experience like working with the Muppets and what would you be responsible for creating in, in, in that, for example? Well, um, what I was primarily responsible for and, uh, was the design of the Gonzo spaceship at the end of the film, because Gonzo's looking for his people, he doesn't know where he's come from, and so at the end of the film, you find out that he's from an alien race, and the big alien ship touches down, and there's a whole song and dance routine, and Gonzo figures out where he's from. So I was primarily responsible for the design of that alien ship. Um, there had been some concepts done already by a guy named David Sharp, who, who, was, who I was working for. David Sharp had, he had the concepts in mind, and he, he said, I kind of wanted to be like a turtle, and there's a shell on the back, and the engines are kind of like legs, and I want the head sticking out the front. So he had the idea, and then I spent probably a month or two drawing and designing and coming up with, you know, the specifics of the spaceship. And then me and Dave and Tom Gleason and a couple of other guys, we built the, the Muppet ship, um, and, which was a motion control ship where, you know, computer controlled lights, computer controlled engines and moves and stuff. And we shot that all on a blue screen stage with motion control and we did all that. Now here's, here's the sad part. The sad part is that I didn't get to work with the Muppets directly. Um, the, the, the boss, uh, David Sharp, he got to go to location. He got to be involved in the setups and the, like, the shooting to make sure that our background plates were all clean. Um, so he got to move, work more directly with them. And he had worked with them before on Muppet Treasure Island. And so because he'd worked on Muppet Treasure Island, it kind of followed that he got Muppets from space. So meanwhile, I'm back in Los Angeles working on the designs for the ship and doing all of that. However, I thought the Henson organization in general was just a very good organization to work for. They, they knew what they wanted, they were organized, they were pleasant. Uh, Brian Henson, who directed, he was, he was great to work with. He was, he was pleasant to work with, very, very clear about what he wanted. Um, we were doing, for the setup to like, set everything up for camera, we needed little Gonzo stands in, stand in. So I did get to sculpt a Gonzo. So some of my Gonzos are out there floating around in the world. And the spaceship, I think, is in the, the last I heard, the, the spaceship was in the Henson offices in New York City. If it's, whether or not it's still there, I don't know. But um, that was a lot of fun. That was um, a lot of fun. And that's kind of, that's kind of the contrast right there of, even though Muppets from Space wasn't a huge film, I think our Muppet spaceship unit, building the ship and doing the visual effects and shooting all the motion control stuff, was probably more money than some of my feature films. Like some of the feature films that I've written and directed, I'm sure that the whole Muppet spaceship unit was more money than my first feature film was. So oh, wow. just to give you an idea of this, the sliding scale between the independent scene and the studio scene. Um, but that was a really, that was a really fun experience. And you feel a sense of responsibility, like this is the Muppets, man. We can't screw this up. This is the Muppets. We screw this up, people are gonna be pissed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, and since you mentioned uh, you had designed a spaceship here, you have another credit here that you did miniature work on, the Flight of the Intruder? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Yeah. So, what what uh, 
Can you tell us your experience about that? Because that was a, another big, big movie that I remember. Yeah, and again, we were in a situation where, you know, we're one of several effects units working on this film, and, you know, John Milius and all the actors and the people are over, you know, in the Philippines someplace shooting live-action scenes, and we're in Los Angeles, you know, stuck in a warehouse making visual effects. But there's a lot of battle scenes in the film. So there was, uh, and there was a lot of motion control, you know, back before the, the computers took over. So I think one of the constructions was the largest HO scale miniature ever built or ever built for film. So HO scale is like your average train layout, your average electric train layout that kids have. That's HO scale. It's probably roughly one sixty second scale. Okay. This miniature was gigantic. It filled a warehouse. And this was for all these scenes, these point of view scenes of these intruder jets flying in and attacking. And so there was a downtown Hanoi miniature, which they launch all these missiles and they start blowing stuff up and the Hanoi is blowing to pieces. Um, and then there were a lot of inserts of like missiles flying through the air, tracking after jets. Um, there were a lot of miniatures of the intruder. I think it was the DA6 intruder in various scales. Some were just like off the shelf model kits that were just built really carefully and detailed really nicely. And some were like fiberglass shells that were larger. Um, and then something that was like my personal project. And I, you probably can see it for like five seconds in the finished film is I built this enormous tank model. This is like a one-sixth scale, maybe tank model, one-quarter scale. This tank was probably six feet long, and it had firing cannons, and we built the terrain surrounding it, and it was just for a sequence of this cannon tracking in on the planes and shooting at them. And this was all done at this place called Intravision. Now, here's a, here's a little bit of history for you. Intravision was this process where without getting too technical it was a process where they used front screen projection and they were able to capture everything in camera so kind of like the Mandalorian now they've got a big digital screen behind the actors and the digital image on the screen looks so real and you capture it in camera Intervision was using like front projection so actors could be in a set and the set could be a miniature. The set could have been photographed earlier. They used it heavily on Outland. Outland with Sean Connery was like oh, the premier yeah. piece of, of Intravision. Well, Intravision kind of was caught in the middle between, you know, the old blue screen optical process and the new digital stuff. So Intravision had a period of time there of about five or ten years in the 80s where they were doing stuff and it was succeeding and it was catching on and then digital hit and they had no, no use for this stuff anymore and they cast it aside and then Intervision kind of folded. So we did all this stuff. So it was kind of it was kind of like LaserDisc before, between VHS and, and DVDs. <laughs> yes, Intervision was the LaserDisc of effects facilities. And they <laughs> did really cool stuff and the process, the whole idea is you know, you catch as much stuff in camera on film as you can in the first pass, and it looks better. You know, if you have to run it through optical a half a dozen times and do blue screen and all kinds of second and third passes, it starts to look less sharp. 
Intravision had a way of getting this all on camera in the first pass. So they, they were able to film my giant tank model and like put people into the shot and put a background behind it. So it was all really incredible and really cool. And the movie kind of came and went. It's probably more of a cult film at this point. And I remember the two lead actors, Willem Dafoe and uh, Brad, Brad Johnson, I think his name is, they were on Intravision stages for a couple of days here and there. But what's funny about stuff like that is you're so busy and the crew is so huge and there's so much to do that, you know, you walk on stage and you've got 10 things to do and you got to get ready and you got to film and there's Willem Dafoe and you're like, oh, oh hey, hi, how you doing? Uh, you got to sit here, you got to do this, don't do this, don't do that. Okay, cool, thanks. And boom, you're moving on. Like, I just met Willem Dafoe. Okay, he's gone. That's how fast the stuff moves. So even on Predator 2, people are always asking me about Danny Glover. How was Danny Glover? Well, Danny Glover was cool for the two and a half seconds I got to say, hey, man, how you doing? Hey, cool. Nice costume. Boom. Done. Moving on. Because we're moving so fast. You know, very rarely do you get to just, like, sit and hang out and chat with actors. I mean, if you're on a show for 50 or 60 days and there's some downtime, sooner or later you're going to talk to them. But on special effects shoots and specialty shoots, zip. In and out, gone, done, bye, see you later. It's like, did you meet Danny Glover? Well, kind of. <laughs> Technically, yeah. I seen him. <laughs> I saw him. I stood next to him. <laughs> yeah. he, you know, I told him not to touch you know, that. He, <laughs> yeah, don't touch that. Yeah. Nice to meet you. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah. So, and then, so, um, you know, you, I'm just kind of focused on your uh, your miniature work this this kind of stuff has always kind of intrigued me and sure. you uh you worked on a movie that that i really enjoy uh clive barker's lord of illusions oh yeah is that oh yeah lord of illusions yeah lord of illusions for me was interesting because it was le- it was visual effects oriented but it was more it wasn't really about miniatures uh there there was a scene in the theater where, is it Swan, was that his name? Um, the Magician. The Magician is yes. putting yeah. on the big show in the Pantages Theater, um, and before he dies, before the swords drop and go through him and kill him, um, there's this big dance routine up on stage with this giant gargoyle creature with these huge wings. Mm-hmm. And I actually sculpted and painted that giant gargoyle on the stage, oh, wow. um, which was really fun because unlike Danny Glover or Willem Dafoe, I got to spend a lot of time with Clive Barker. I got to talk to him a lot. And one of the cool things about Clive, I've still got one of the original sketches he did. He kind of did a loose concept of this big gargoyle and he showed it to me. And I did, I think, another sketch and sent it back to him. And he was like, yeah, this is cool, this is cool. And then I asked him, well, how far can we go here? How, how crazy can, can we get? And he said, there's no such thing as too far. He said, you can get as crazy with this as you want to. So that was really fun. And then, you know, having him come in and sign off on stuff and adjust stuff. But that was a giant foam sculpture and a giant set of wings. And that all had to be rigged. The, the sculpture had to drop below the stage and come back up. The wings had to fly up into the rafters. 
And then there was this giant floating, like clear sarcophagus and somebody else made the sarcophagus, but I had to fill it with sand and rig it for exploding. So that was all incredibly complicated, but very, very cool. And that's one of those things where you suddenly find yourself in the spotlight and you realize, you know, oh crap, now it's all on me. Like, you know, nine out of 10 times you're part of a huge crew and you're one little cog in the machine. That gargoyle was on me. Like the gargoyle was on stage or not on stage based on my my responsibility. It was me, it was up to me to get that damn thing on the stage. I mean, other guys came in and lifted it and put it on a truck and took it to the to the theater. But I had to do it. I had to do it and get it together and figure it out and get it done on time. So that was, that's one of the, that's part of professionalism. You don't act like you're freaking out, but you don't show everybody that you're freaking out. Like you're flipping out inside, but you're cool and calm on the surface. And you're going, oh yeah, cool, no problem. And in your head, you're going, oh my God, how am I going to do this? So that worked out really well. And there was so much stuff going on around that. There were so many other projects going on and they were working on the rotating like pentagram formations and the magnetic releases that would drop the swords on cubes so there were a lot of effects guys working all at the same time back and forth trying to make all that happen and then the other thing on that show was puppeteering there's the sequence at the end where the bad guy I think he basically gets thrown back into hell more or less Mm -hmm. And there was a like a transformed evil version of him, which we had to puppeteer falling down into hell. So I was one of the puppeteers on that sequence where he was falling down into hell. Um, and that was uh, that was also, you know, that was another show, a very different kind of show because you got to hang out with Scott Bakula a little bit. You had to talk to Scott; he was very friendly. Um, never talked to Samka Jansen, but very pretty, very nice. Um, so that was a fun show and I, I have an autographed copy of one of Clyde Barker's books and he basically while while we were filming that film one of his books was released and he basically had boxes and boxes that he was just giving out to the crew so I remember being invited like production office called everybody and said we're shooting on this location this day if anybody wants to stop by and get a book they can so I was able to show up on set and just say hi and watch for a while and then get a book and during a break he, he signed it for me so to this day I still have that you know autographed Clive Barker which which is really really cool I've never read it though never <laughs> <laughs> read it so. and, and since you mentioned uh, Mission Impossible 2 uh, mm-hmm. you, you, do you want to talk a little bit about, about what your responsibilities were there and some of the uh, some of the things that you did Sure. Uh, Mission Impossible 2, another film that was really interesting in that it was teetering on that edge of digital. Like, where is this going? What are we going to do? Because it started off, the visual effects supervisor on that film was a guy named Richard Urisich. And Richard, just putting it briefly, his father, or his brother, I I don't remember his father or his brother, I think it was his father, um, Matthew Urisich was a famous matte painter, and we're talking about he worked on Mary Poppins and Ben Hur and films like that. I mean, his mm-hmm. father was Hollywood royalty, and Richard had worked on 2001: A Space Odyssey, Close Encounters. He he'd worked on a lot of huge films, 
So Richard's the effects supervisor, and he wants to do everything old school. He wants to build giant models and shoot a motion control and do all this stuff. So for the, the opening crash sequence where the 747, the, the bad guys take over the 747 and they knock everybody out with sleeping gas and they set the plane to descend into the mountains and crash. So that was all motion control 747. So we built this probably 14 foot long, 14 foot wingspan 747 model. Super, super detailed. The, the totally cool thing about it is rarely do, I mean, you build things from scratch occasionally, but when you can get your hands on something else and cut the work down, you do that a lot. We searched around Hollywood and somebody, I want to say like Universal, had a huge 747 model in storage. And we contacted them and said, can we get your 747 model? Can we make molds off of it and then cast our own 747? And that saves us a huge amount of time in sculpting and doing all this other stuff. Well, when we got the 747 model from them, it wasn't 100% accurate and it, was, it wasn't very detailed, but we realized we think it was from the old disaster film, um, Airport 77. Oh, wow. Which was one, one of the airport series of films where the, the jet crashed on the water and then it sunk and the passengers are trapped in the jet underwater. So we, we had basically a 747 from Airport 77 that we were pulling molds off of. And then once we got our own parts, we super detailed them and, you know, skinned them with little sheets of aluminum to make it look like panels. And our, our model was super, super detailed compared to the, the molds we pulled from. So we built this model, we sent it over, that was like the fall of 1999. We built it and sent it over to England because all the effects work was being done in England. And, you know, they filmed the ship and they, they inferred the crash. They didn't show the crash, they just showed zooming in on the mountains and then a big explosion and then Tom Cruise is climbing on a rock. Well, as they were editing the film and putting the film together, they realized it wasn't, something wasn't working. Like, there's a scene where he tries to convince, Tom Cruise tries to convince Tandy Newton to join him. Like, look, this is what the terrorists did. This is what your boyfriend did. This is the horrible thing. And he shows her on his computer, here's the crash site and here's all the bodies in body bags. And they built like, a facade of the side of the plane and put fake snow around it and they showed rescue workers like pulling body bags out of the airplane and it just didn't sell like you didn't like it didn't have the scope it didn't have the the effect they were looking for so the movie is due to be released like I don't know, may 25th or something of 2000 and yeah on like april 10th like six weeks before the release of the film were contacted by Richard Urasich, and he goes, hey, I've packaged up the plane, I'm sending it back to you. What we want you to do is destroy it, make it look like it's crashed, we want you to build like a mountainside, we want you to scatter the wreckage of the jet all across the mountainside, and we want you to take high resolution digital still photos of this crash site. So we get this beautiful I don't know, $50,000 747 model back from England, and we destroy it. Oh, we take man. saws to it, we chop holes in it, we twist up the wings, we, we burn it, we build an interior that we fill with little burnt bodies, 
and we build this huge mountainside on a stage and we put stage this 747 model on this mountainside and we're flummoxed because okay it's mid-april how the hell you're cutting negative at this point you've got to distribute this thing you've got to send prints of this movie out to the theaters how are you going to put this in the movie well digital we shot digital stills we got the digital stills to them by like april 25th i think one month before the movie came out they composited those into the computer screen in the film digitally printed all that stuff out conformed the negative made prints and got it all out to the theaters by may 25th and that was my first experience with how fast everything was getting and how quick the digital was because there was a time when scanning things digitally and doing digital work and then putting the digital shot back into the film that was expensive and it was really hard to do and it was just getting faster and faster and faster and we also realized well if we can make changes at the 11th hour things are going to start getting crazier because if filmmakers know that they can change stuff weeks before release you know you guys have probably heard about in the first Avengers film, they had the casting, they had basically the premiere. They had the premiere, and it was probably, I don't know, a month before the general release, maybe less. And that's when Joss Whedon had the idea of doing the falafel scene when they're all sitting in the restaurant, the destroyed restaurant after the whole invasion, and they do the post credit scene yep. of the Avengers sitting in the falafel restaurant. They went like the evening or the day after the premiere and shot that scene and dropped it into the movie literally weeks before the film premiered. That's right, because so, Chris Evans was actually uh, working on something else and he had a full beard. Yes, and so uh, on the one hand, that's really amazing that you have the technology to do that, and on the other hand, nothing's ever done, and the crew is scrambling and running like crazy right, right up to the 11th <laughs> hour, and you know, I'm old school. I'm old school. I'm like, come up with a design, do some storyboards, plan it out, build everything, visualize it, and do it, you know, and then there's another mentality that's like, well, it's digital, we can change it until the last minute. It's like, yeah, yeah, you can. It doesn't mean you should. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so anyway, Mission Impossible 2 was a fun experience. Tom Cruise did not try to convert us to Scientology. We never encountered Tom Cruise, but we didn't have to sign any Scientologist release. Tom Cruise was fine. Richard Urasich was awesome. Um, we were having a discussion one night, like we were sitting around after we'd been working, and David Sharp, uh, myself, and Richard Urasich were sitting there talking. And I was talking about, you know, the challenges of working on something, or maybe I was complaining about Muppets from Space or something. And then David Sharp chimed in, and he was talking about, you know, oh, I was working on Event Horizon and blah, 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 blah. And Richard Urasich turns around, and he goes, well, one time when I was working on 2001 A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick walked in, and he said blah, 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 blah. And he just, like, trumped everybody, and he, like, shut the conversation down. It's like, we're all talking about, you know, this and that and he's like oh yeah Stanley Kubrick 2001 Space Odyssey and we were just like ah, okay you win <laughs> well, you win you just played the Stanley Kubrick card okay we'll shut up now yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah. it's kind of neat how that brought everything kind of full circle for you with 2001 being the first movie that you, that you remember you know that's fascinating because I never put two and two together on that you're absolutely right 
Yeah, and it never really clicked with me that to go from 2001 to working with Richard Urosic. Because I think in my head, I was always identifying Richard with Douglas Trumbull, who also was 2001, but Douglas Trumbull was an effect supervisor on Close Encounters and Blade Runner. And so in my modern day brain, I was thinking more of those films and I wasn't thinking about the effects on 2001. But yeah, you see, you get something new out of every conversation. Yeah, I didn't even think about how that's full circle from 2001 to 2001. So thank you for that. Yeah, no <laughs> I'm glad we can contribute that for you. There you go. So and yeah. I think you've, you've kind of answered this question, but... In in your projects that you would that you would work on, um, obviously, with the digital being what it is now, would you still prefer the the old school and doing it you know the old way with the with the miniatures and all that? Yeah, you hear this a lot in visual effects, like the the, the principle in visual effects, even for the gigantic CGI fests and the superhero films, you hear them talk a lot about getting something real on camera, if at least for no other reason than reference. Like, okay, we're gonna digitally replace the cape, but let's at least get some footage of the cape so we know what the cape looks like, so we know how the cape flows. Yes, we're gonna replace the, the you know, Game of Thrones, we're gonna replace the dragon, and Amelia Clark is not really gonna be riding on a dragon, but let's get the dragon sculpture out here, let's put it in the sun, Let's photograph it on this location in this light and let's see what it looks like so we have reference. So that's kind of where my brain is, although I stick more with it. Um, on the film we're working on right now, which is the, the little indie feature that my wife and I are doing, it's called Dark at the Top of the Stairs. And there are sequences that take place outside at night. And you guys know that, you know, the naked eye sees night and you go out on a moonlit night and you can see the world around you. It's very dimly lit, but you can see it. Cameras can't really pick that up yet. Even as good as digital cameras are, you can't set up a camera at night and capture what the landscape looks like under moonlight. So what I will do is go out with like a digital still camera, do a time exposure of the landscape, and then I will bring that into, you know, a, a nonlinear editing system, a digital editing system, and I will combine it with live action footage. Like if there's a guy sitting on his front porch, I'll shoot the guy on the front porch live, and then I'll do a time exposure of the landscape, and then digitally I can put those two things together. So it's digital manipulation, but it's still basically real, if you will. It's like enhanced enhanced reality. Um, I just did a shot that tilted up from dark trees up to the moon with clouds moving by, which again, trying to get all that on real camera is nearly impossible. So I was able to take footage of real daylight clouds, invert them, you know, take out the sky, take a real photo of the moon, put it against a real photo of stars, put it against a real thing of, of trees, and so it's a digital effects shot, if you will, but everything in it is real. The clouds are real, the moon's real, the stars are real, the, the trees are real. They're just all layered together and combined to look, you know, to look the right style for the shot. And that's, that's a lot of what we do. Um, you know, I'm big on like things like using a puppet that's on a rod and then kicking the rod out. 
and yeah, the rod involves digitally, you know, removing the rod is a digital process. Um, you know, spaceships. Um, I plan on making a spaceship film at some point, but I've recently done test shots. Um, I was doing a presentation for the Science Center here in St. Louis, and they were having Star Wars night, and they invited me to do some kind of an effects presentation. And so I have a large X-Wing model that's like two and a half feet long, and I set up the X-Wing in front of a blue screen. I set up a camera on a dolly, and I would just dolly the camera past the X-Wing, and it looked like it was flying by. And then went home and, you know, traditional, took out the blue screen, put in stars behind it. But rather than the old school optical printing, where you have to go through a whole optical process and multiple pieces of film, I was just able to go home and digitally remove the blue and put the star field in the background. So I'm using all the same techniques as they would use in 1977. I'm just taking advantage of the digital aspects of, you know, being being able to do things easier because honestly, if I, without digital, there's a lot of filmmakers that don't exist today. I, I certainly wouldn't have the film credits that I do because I wouldn't be able to afford it. I mean, the cameras have gotten so good and the, the computers have gotten so good that doing the kind of stuff I'm doing um, and doing the effects that I'm doing back in the film days, that would have just been prohibitively expensive. I, I remember as a kid making my Super 8 movies, I had to go and buy a roll of film. I had to expose it. I had to know how to shoot film exposure. And then I had to go and pay and get it developed. And if I did it wrong, that was it. I wasted the film. I, I wasted the setup. I didn't, I didn't get it. With digital, you know if you got it right then and there. And unfortunately, as a lot of young people are like, oh, it's digital. Just keep shooting. It doesn't matter. It doesn't cost anything. Just keep shooting. I hate that mentality. But it's true. I mean, we shoot all day, and I don't hesitate to go, oh, man, that, that wasn't right. We need to go back and do that again. If that was a film shoot, dear God, I mean, you'd get chastised just for the expense. But digital? No, it's like, oh, that's not right. But let's do it again. Let's do 17 shots because we got to get it right. It doesn't cost us anymore. It's, you know, you got to put it all on the computer, and you got the editor's got to sort through it. But... So that was a long answer to, yes, I like sticking to the old school stuff of having as much reality on camera as is possible. I think that the really advanced CGI, like Avatar 2, The Way of Water, it's not the most brilliant film, but my God, the effects in it are as flawless and amazing of visual effects as I've ever seen. But the level it takes them to get to that and the amount of time and programming and development it takes to get to that, I won't ever be able to get there on my level. So I'm going to put puppets in a water tank. I'm going to put blue painted people in a water tank. That's how I'm going to do Avatar because, you know, if you're, if you're half-assing it somewhere in between, it's not going to look good. So either do it real or do it all the way, but to do it all the way, you know, is Avatar 2, and that's, I mean, we've all seen, like, Asylum videos, or we've all seen, you know, Sharknado, and we've seen what the half-ass CGI looks like, so, you know, I'm not a CGI guy, I'm not, I wasn't in on that, I didn't learn how to do, I mean, I understand CGI, and I understand all the effects, I'm not a programmer, I'm not a guy who builds 3D models. So if you ask me to do a dinosaur film, I'm going to put a guy in a costume. 
I'm not going to build a digital dinosaur. I'm going to put a guy in a costume Godzilla style and have him go stomping across a miniature because that's what I know how to do. See, and that's, so, that's the stuff we both love. Yeah. Sure. And... If I if like we like when we're doing movies, if I could do something like that, which is always in the back of my mind, but I can't ever afford to make that stuff. <laughs> right. It's it's like okay, I want to do this. Let's try to figure it out. And right. how much is it going to cost us? And can we actually make this happen? Yeah. And, and, and yeah, one of the things I love so much about the monster movie, you, you, you like the Japanese stuff. Um, some, yeah, sure, sometimes it's cheesy, sometimes it's ridiculous, but I love the fact that they just go for it. You know, they never stop and think, oh, do we have enough money to do this flawlessly realistically? No, they don't care. They want to make it entertaining, and they want to they wanna tell the story. So if something's out of focus, okay, so what? If the model was a little too small and it doesn't look completely realistic, so what? If the monster suit wasn't really well built and it's a little rubbery looking so what they go for it and i love that aspect of yep. what the japanese do I, kind of like i think sam raimi kind of works like that i mean oh, sam yeah. raimi is now directing gigantic studio films that cost hundreds of millions of dollars but when he was starting out like evil dead he wasn't worried about how flawlessly realistic it was he was just going let's just do this and he did and it's so gonzo and so out of control you can't help but love it and be entertained and you know he got the film done it, it, evil dead too I, I respect evil dead i respect um uh army of darkness and i respect the series but Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn, is my favorite of them yep. because it's scary, it's funny, it's a little more advanced, the effects are a little better, but it's still on that cheesy edge. And again, he could have said, oh, I want every single thing to be perfect and done half of what he did, but he just went for it. He just went, eh, it's not perfect, but we're putting it in here. And okay, it's not perfect, I won't show it on screen as long. And you know, I just, I just love that sort of commitment. And that's sort of kind of what we're trying to do. I know so many filmmakers who, they're, they're scared to go for stuff. Like, oh, I don't know how to do that. Oh, that seems really hard. I, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I get people contacting me from around the world through the internet, filmmakers, fans, um, I've done some fan film stuff, so I get fan filmmakers contacting me, asking me, how did you do this, how did you do that? And I can't tell you the number of times I've told somebody, well, this is how we did that. And the response is basically, oh, that seems really hard. I was like, yeah, hello, it's filmmaking, man. Welcome to the world. You want to do this? Then you buckle up and you, you sit down and you do it and you work hard and you get the damn thing done. You know, you don't have a lot of money. So what? You're going to have to figure out how to do this and you're going to have to work harder to make it happen. If you care and you want to do this, then you'll buckle down and you'll freaking do it. But yeah, just the number of people, well, how did you do this? And how did you do that? Oh, that sounds, filmmaking is hard. I'm like, well, then this is not for you then. Because if you just want to sit in a chair and watch your monitor, then go to Hollywood and work on a $300 million film. But if you're doing this yourself for 50 bucks, yeah, you're going to have to get your hands dirty. So, yeah. Yeah, that's the best stuff right there. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I have ambitions to do a monster film at some point. I don't know when, but I want to do basically a guy in a suit. And, you know, there's the difference between Godzilla tromping around in the 1950s. And he looks like a guy in a suit. He's beautiful, but he looks like a guy in a suit. And then there's the guys who were in raptor suits. Not the CGI shots, but the, the guys who were in raptor suits in Jurassic Park. And, that, my God, nobody's taken... Like, you've seen stuff like Walking with Dinosaurs, the arena show, or mm-hmm. Walking with Dinosaurs, the stadium show. Those costumes and mechanics and stuff are fantastic. And I don't know why... Somebody hasn't taken that kind of technology and just done a straight film. Like, put a couple of guys in raptor suits and let them run through the jungle and do that stuff live on camera. You know, Predator style. Yeah. Go back to, you know, big, good, cool suits. So sooner or later, I want to do, like, you know, the giant dinosaur loose in the city story. And it's going to be old school, man. It's going to be guy in a suit, you know, really good suit, really well done suit, photographed well composited together well you know like a 1950s monster movie like tarantula oh yeah but in color in color and set modern day and that's the only difference i want to do a 1950s style monster movie using the technology that we have now minus the cgi dinosaur i would love to do that that's a passion project that i will do sometime in the future i just don't know when (laughs) one of one of my favorite cheesy monster movies is a movie called she creature yeah, she creature. The the yeah. the movie is it's not a very good movie, but the, just the way the monster looks in the movie, even just the stills, it's amazing. Yeah. the way they did that back then. Yeah, yeah, that's a really really cool monster. I just recently, for the first time ever, saw, and now I'm drawing a blank on the name. It's Dana Andrews. It's a black and white film. It's set in England, and. It's about the runes, and somebody passes a curse to him, and the monster starts haunting him. Oh. And you know what I'm talking about. And the monster's horrifying. It's this big, you said she-creature, and it reminded me of this monster from this other film. I'll have to figure out the title. But, Is it Night of the Demon? And I don't know that... Sorry? Night of the Demon? Night of the Demon, yes. And I don't even think it was a costume. I just think it was like a puppet that maybe they were manipulating. And it is creepy as hell. It is so creepy. And I had seen stills. I grew up with stills of that film, like in Famous Monsters magazine. And I finally just recently saw the film. And it's it's still creepy. It's made in the 1950s, black and white. And it's still spooky. I think I have that on my list of movies to watch right now. Yeah, it's on my list. It's, I think it's on. I think I've got it on my cable box or or right. something. I've got it. I've got it somewhere. I know what, but I'm gonna. I gotta watch that movie. Yeah, it's creepy. It's really creepy. There's a line in the opening song from the Rocky Horror Picture Show when the Red Lips are singing the opening titles, mm-hmm. and there's a line of dialogue that said Dana Andrews said per, uh, Prunes gave him the runes. Yes, and they're referring to Night of the Demon. The, the runes, the, the ancient writings, the runes, um, that's what they're referring to. So so Night of the Demon is referenced in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Wow. A little, little, little piece of trivia for you. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's kind of transition over into your, your acting credits here. Um, sure. You, it looks like you got to kind of dip your toe into the Star Trek universe a little bit. Yes, yes I did. 
So that was that was a lot of fun. You so, expect the next generation, uh, generation yeah. Um, it, and what's interesting about that is I don't have any lines of dialogue. I'm I'm basically a featured player. I'm like a featured extra. Um, so on you, the one hand, you weren't wearing a red shirt, deal? were you? No, no, not a red shirt. I okay. take it all the way through. Okay, the just double checking. Um, <laughs> I was I was wearing a blue suit, so I, I got away okay. But uh, the thing about it, I mean, I was featured. I'm clearly there. If you see the episode, um, you know, there's always the opening teaser before they go to the end credits. I'm very featured in the opening teaser, and um, Star Trek was just of all my of all the acting experiences. Star Trek was just amazing. Because, like I said, I don't have any dialogue, you know, um, I'm spattered throughout the episode. There's a character in the episode named uh, Alexana, who is the, like, the police commander of this planet. And Alexana has a couple of bodyguards, and I'm one of her bodyguards, and I spend much of the show basically over her shoulder protecting her, watching out for her. Um, and what was cool about that was that the actress Alexana was, na- was an actress named Carrie Keene. And Carrie Keene, for all the horror fans out there, she was in a movie with John Cassavetes called The Incubus. Yes. Yep. With, and so she, she was in The Incubus. And when I first met her on set, I was like, oh my God, The Incubus, I love that film. And of course, we immediately bonded because I was probably one of the only people on the soundstage who had ever seen The Incubus and liked it. Um, so, but the thing about Star Trek was just, it was, I don't know, it was such a classy experience. You know, I got cast, um, and without going into detail, because it's a long story, the, the casting process was funny. Um, you know, there's a lot to be said some days for just being yourself and being a goofball because I was being myself and I was being a goofball and that's apparently what they needed at that moment because I got cast and then I got brought in several times for a costume fitting. So yeah, Star Trek's been famous all throughout its history for the costumes and the art decoration, the art department, but going in and having a Star Trek costume fitted to you specifically was pretty amazing. And then I was on set filming for like three days, and that meant, you know, three days with, you know, Jonathan Frakes, three days with Patrick Stewart, three days with Gates McFadden, three days with Michael Dorn, and just hanging out with these people and just listening to them talk, listening to them talk about conventions, listening to them talk about fans. And I was just a sponge. I just sat back and soaked it up. And again, professional for me yeah I know how to hit my marks I know I know how to act I know how to do all of that I know how to hold my body and my face into the lighting so that it looks right on camera I know all that stuff professionalism on that show was again not freaking out because I'm hanging out with all these people the first day we were shooting I got in hair and makeup and I walked out onto the set and the first person I saw was Jonathan Frakes, Captain Riker. He extends his hand, he goes, hi, I'm Jonathan, let me be the first walking aboard the Enterprise, and let me say nice hair, because I had this white stripe through my hair. It was a planet where all the men had a white stripe through their dark hair, and all the women had a a dark stripe through their red hair, so that made us aliens. Um, (laughs) So that was really, really cool, (laughs) and I'm standing there talking to Jonathan Frakes and just chatting, you know, the weather, traffic, blah, 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 
and you know, I hear that, I hear that voice from behind me. You know, I hear that voice. It's like, "Good morning, Jonathan," and I'm like, oh, "That's Patrick Stewart." And you know, he walks up, and you know, "Good morning," and I'm, you know, and it's all you can do to just go, "Hi, nice to meet you," and just be cool and not lose it because it's <laughs> Patrick freaking Stewart. Because I know Patrick Stewart is like life force, Excalibur. Mm-hmm. I know I know Patrick Dude. Stewart going way back from before Star Trek. So and then of course Michael Doran walks in in full wharf makeup and you know, and it just the director was amazing, the crew was amazing, the experience was amazing, you know, it was nice to have good craft service, it was nice to be fed well, it was nice to be treated well. Um, and because we were featured every time they'd call a break all the extras had to go out to extras holding. They had to go sit out in a tent somewhere because we were featured. We got to go sit with everybody else. So, you know, here, come sit over here. And there's a circle of chairs and it's like, okay, you sit down with the guest star and you sit down with the lead actors. And yeah, I, I can't rant about the Star Trek experience enough. The Star Trek experience was just really, really fantastic. And, you know, you, <laughs> With Star Trek and Predator 2 both, years later, with the internet, you know, people start putting on conventions and they're able to connect easier, and suddenly I'm being invited to conventions for a Star Trek appearance I did decades earlier, and you feel a little bit like an imposter. You feel a little bit like, well, why should I be doing this? But, you know, then you meet fans who are such, they're so fond of the show, and they just want to talk to you. And they they just want to hear about your experience, and you know. So I got over the imposter syndrome of like, well, why am why am I special? Why do I get to go to conventions and sign autographs? Well, it's because fans love the show and they appreciate it so much. And I'm just glad that okay, maybe you live in Central Illinois and you will never meet somebody from Star Trek, but you'll be able to meet me. You know, you didn't get to meet Patrick Stewart, but you get to meet me, and I get to tell you about Patrick Stewart. And that, for some people, it's like, that's great, because at least in some way they feel connected. And I'm sure a lot of the people who will be at your convention probably would say the same thing. They would say, you know, I was on the show Land of the Lost 40 years ago, and it meant a lot to a lot of people. And if we can, you know, get a photo with them and sign an autograph for them and make them happy, well, then it's worth it. So. Absolutely. You brought yeah. Predator 2, and you did some costume uh, acting on that as, as a Predator. What, yes. what was it like to be a Predator? I mean, that's a, that's some pretty big uh, boots to fill right there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's like, that's like a badge of honor. That's like, I could probably go to another country, and, you know, people wouldn't know who I was or what I was talking about, but I could say Predator, you know, and, and Predator, Predator, Boar, Predator 2. They'd be like, oh, yeah. So um, Predator 2 was interesting. You know, they say it's not what you know in Hollywood, but it's who you know. That's true to a certain extent. But it's like you have to know what you're doing and you have to be good at what you're doing. But it helps to have a connection to people who trust you. And if all things being equal, if there's two people who can do the job, but I know one of them and I trust them, I'm going to take the one that I know and trust. Well, I'd been working with a stuntman named Brian Simpson, and Brian was on the first Predator film. You know, there was the whole thing on the Predator, the first one where they did one creature design, and Jean-Claude Van Damme was in the suit. The suit wasn't working. The studio didn't like it. Jean-Claude Van Damme was a pain in the butt. 
They fired him, they shut down the film, they scrapped the first suit, they went back to Hollywood, they redesigned the suit, they came back, they finished the film, and it was then the classic Predator suit that we all know and love. And it was Kevin Peter Hall playing the Predator. Well, this guy, Brian Simpson, was a stuntman who was involved with the effects people. And what a lot of people don't realize is when it wasn't, when it wasn't the Predator in the scene with Arnold, the Predator didn't have to be seven and a half feet tall. If you're doing a scene of a Predator jumping off of a cliff or falling into water or jumping from tree limb to tree limb, that doesn't have to be Kevin Peter Hall. He's not qualified to do that. So they build a slightly smaller duplicate of the Predator costume for stuntman Brian Simpson, and then he can do all the dangerous stuff while Kevin Peter Hall sits back and does the hero scenes with Arnold. So that's a long way of saying there was a Predator suit built from the first film that fit Brian Simpson. Brian Simpson and I are the same size. We'd worked together on other films and I'd gotten to know him. Brian Simpson was going to be the boar Predator and he might have actually had the costume on. Like there's a... There's a whole dance sequence that's on the internet, and that's actually Brian dancing in that scene. That's not me. That was something they shot behind the scenes for fun. But when it came time to shoot the scene in the spaceship at the end of Predator 2, they had to pull Brian to go do the scene where the Predator gets his arm lopped off and he slides down the side of the building. Oh, yeah. So they needed, yeah, they needed Brian out rigging and prepping that. So Brian gave up his slot in the spaceship, but since we were the same size, he knew me, and I had done creature stuff on other films, he called me and said, hey, dude, you want to be a predator? And I'm like, what's a stupid question? Of course I want to be a predator. no, No kidding, I got the call on like Monday evening, and... Tuesday morning, I was on the 20th Century Fox backlot in a Predator costume. Oh, my God. That's so awesome. Wow. That's how quickly that happened. And then that was kind of shocked. That was just like, I'm on 20th Century Fox backlot. I'm in the Predator spaceship. How, uh, I was one of the first people. How tall are you, if you don't mind the, me asking? Say what? How tall are you, if you don't mind me asking? You know, I'm not that big of a guy. I was I was definitely the runt Predator. I was, I'm was. i 6'1". I'm 6'1", by the time you get in the costume and you've got the big head, and you, you seem much bigger than 6'1". There was one other guy who was not, he wasn't a lot taller than me. He was like maybe 6'2", 6'3". And then everybody else, uh, other than Kevin Peter Hall, were L.A. Lakers basketball players. So the rest of these guys were 6'5", 6'7". 6'10". The rest of these guys were really tall. So I am definitely the smallest predator in the bunch. But the way they shot it wasn't really, um, you know, you can't really tell. I mean, I can point out to you in the scene which predator I am. And the way they shot it all, and it's all moving so fast, and the camera's on a steady cam, and the camera's whipping around, and you're panning from one predator to the next, and... You really can't tell. The only one who looks really massive is Kevin Peter Hall, because he is really massive, um, and everybody else. But I was the smallest predator there. 
So, and again, that suit was designed to not be seen in a shot with other people, but for that, they pulled out everything. They made extra costumes, they would pull additional molds, they would paint them differently, they would decorate them differently, they'd put a different helmet on them. So I don't think they had more than a couple of designs. They were just modifying them and refitting them and redecorating them to make as many predators as they could. And that whole Lost Tribe thing, the Lost Tribe thing is a fan creation that happened years later. We weren't the Lost Tribe when we were shooting it. We were just, you know, hey you, come over here. I wasn't the boar predator then. I was just, you know, hey weed, come over here, you know, stand here. Um, the whole Lost Tribe and the individual names and stuff were kind of more generated after the fact, but then they were adopted by the toy companies, the fans, the movies, the, the makeup effects studio, Stan Winston studio. <laughs> I wasn't supposed to have a camera on set. It was all supposed to be very secret. But this is 1990. Mm-hmm. You know, what are you going to do with film back in 1990? I mean, what are you going to do, print it and send it to a magazine? It wasn't like the internet. It wasn't like, ooh, I'm going to snap a digital photo and it'll be uploaded to the internet and seen by a million people within an hour. We didn't have access like that. So, yeah, we weren't supposed to have cameras on set. I smuggled my camera on set (laughs) in my backpack. So during a break, I grabbed my, my assistant, the guy who was taking care of my costume, I said, dude, can we get some shots of me in the costume? And he, and he looks around, and he goes, we're not really supposed to. He said, sure. So that's where my photographs that I autograph come from. Is there's a photo of me standing there with my head off, and then we stepped outside the soundstage and got a photo of me standing out in the street between the sound stages in the costume. And actually Stan Winston's effects page found my photo of me in the Predator costume and put it on their website. So there's actually a photo of me on the Stan Winston website, which is the illegal photo that I wasn't supposed to have to begin with. Because I believe I've seen that. On their website. Yeah. I'm sorry? I've I've seen that picture on on his web, on the Stan Winston website. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my actual photo. And it, it, it was years, I mean, it was years and years and years went by when we were at a convention. We'd made a feature film, we'd made a vampire film, we were at a convention promoting the vampire film, and a friend of mine walked up, and he goes, dude, weren't you a predator? I'm like, yeah. He goes, weren't you in Star Trek? I said, yeah. He said, there's a guy over there who was a Harry Krishna zombie 25 years ago in mm-hmm. Dawn of the Dead, and he's making like 25 bucks a pop selling autographs. He said, you were a predator why aren't you selling autographs right now? And I was, and it just struck me. And I was like, yeah, why am I not selling <laughs> autographs right now? And so the next convention we went to, I went and got those original negatives scanned and I made eight by 10 prints. And I took them along and it took off. And again, you go through that phase of, should I really be doing this? Is this, do I have any business doing this? And then you get to a point of like, yeah, what the heck? Predator, Predator fans are universal. Predator fans unite. Everybody loves Predator. Yes, I should be doing this. I should be signing autographs and, you know, and talking to fans about Predator. So, yeah. Um, but the Predator experience, I think I told you earlier, um, Danny Glover, cool, professional, fast-moving. We didn't have a whole lot of time to hang out and talk. We had a lot of footage to shoot that day. 
um, a lot of stuff to get done, and it was just was unbelievably hot on the set. A lot of smoke, a lot of heat, because it was basically a big fiberglass shell that they were shooting light through. So we were basically in an oven. And whenever they could, they'd pull us off set and take our heads off and unzip the backs of our suits. Um, And then... And then um, the Predator costume, wasn't that just a modified wetsuit? More or less. That's exactly what I would describe it as, because the base of it, like, there's there's a hard... There's a hard fiberglass body cast, and all the sculpting is done on these hard fiberglass body casts. And then when they cast, they take a, an outer mold of, of, the, of the creature, and then they peel all the clay off, and over the fiberglass mold, they stretch a lycra bodysuit, and then they put liquid foam on that, and they encase it in the mold and they bake it in a giant oven and then you've got basically a wetsuit on top of a lycra spandex suit okay but yes that's exactly how i would describe it as a wetsuit now if you're a diver if you're listening to this and you're a scuba diver wetsuits you know they keep you warm they give you some buoyancy wetsuits are fine try wearing a wetsuit for 14 hours <laughs> yeah <laughs> not in water try wearing a wetsuit <laughs> Yeah, and walking around, you can't see. You've got an extra head on. You've got big, huge, giant feet, and you're on a you're on a stage that's basically an oven filled with smoke. And and do that for 14 hours, and that's I'm not complaining because I'm I'm part of like a Hollywood elite few who are predators and can say they were predators. But yeah, um, and luckily I was in my 20s. I was fit. I was I had endurance. It is the closest I have coming come to passing out in my adult life was being on that set. Wow. Um and worth every second of it. Oh yeah, worth every second of it. And, and I was but you know, it, thank the internet is a blessing and a curse because Predator 2 came and it kind of went. It was successful, not nearly as successful as the first film. It didn't catch on and light fire like the first film did. Wasn't really considered a classic. It, it did okay, and then it went away. And we all thought, as we do when we do these films, we all think, oh, this is going to put me on the map. This is going to be the one where I'm going to work nonstop after this. Meh. No, I'm not. <laughs> the Predator's here. It's gone. I go back to work. Um, but then with the internet and the resurgence of the films, and they brought Predator vs. Alien back and then the popularity started to grow, and then they're streaming, and then the fan communities start to come together. And most of the invites I get anymore are, you know, you guys invite me to a show, I go to your show, someone else is there and says, oh cool, you, you know, you do conventions, can you come and do my convention? And you know, the internet has just really grown and networked people together. And so, you know, I'm not part of an agency. I don't have a guy out there trying to book me in shows. People have just been contacting me one after the other and getting referrals. And I do, you know, a couple, maybe a half dozen shows a year. And it's all really due to the internet and the growth of the internet. So I don't know how people did this you know, before the internet. I don't know how people showed up at conventions, you know, when it was just flyers posted on a wall or ads in the back of a newspaper. Um, I mean, it, it, they did it, but the, that's one thing the internet has really done. It's brought the fan communities together. Oh, yeah, Sometimes for the worst, but it's brought the fan communities together. 
Now, I want to bring this up, and this is going to be very self-serving for me. <laughs> okay? Because you were in a movie called Kung Fu Rascals, and this, oh, yeah. this oh, ties yeah. you to a member, the leader of my favorite band. You were in a movie with Les Claypool from Primus. Okay, common misconception. Okay. You're, you're not going to believe me when I tell you this, but I swear to you it's true. There's Les Claypool is from Primus. Les Claypool the third is a different guy really? who is the one that was in Kung Fu Rascals. The weird thing is they look very similar. There's two guys named Les Claypool and they could be brothers or even twins, but it's two different guys. And I'm sorry oh, to wow. I'm sorry to trash your uh, your 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 memories there. I've but, lost yeah, all faith actually, in the internet. <laughs> it's, it's actually a different Les Claypool. And he gets that all the time. He gets that. And, and people have posted scenes on YouTube and gone, look, look at how great a martial artist Les Claypool from Primus is. And I've gone on to YouTube before and said, guys, it's not that Les Claypool. It's a different one. And because it looks so much like him, people are like, ah, you're full of it. How can you say it's not Les? And I was like, uh, okay, all right, I tried. But no, I know it's freaky, but it's a different Les Claypool. They look very similar. So, but yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> Kung Fu Rascals was a wacky, wacky experience. Talk about, you know, doing whatever it takes because Kung Fu Rascals was a $43,000 shot on Super 8 Kung Fu comedy, fantasy, basically. And it was written and directed and starring Steve Wang, who was one of the creators of the original Predator, and I got connected to him and Brian Simpson and the whole Predator crew. And before I'd worked on Giver or Predator or anything else, I worked on Kung Fu Rascals. And Kung Fu Rascals was that film where, you know, let's, let's take this out of the trash and spray it gray and let's use that in the background. And now today, let's flip it around backwards and spray it brown and let's use it again. And now tomorrow, let's cut it in half and spray it silver and let's use it again. Kung Fu Rascals was, you know, just, it was a great experience, but it was just down and dirty. And, you know, can you go get the lunch today? And do we have anything for breakfast? Yeah, we have a box of powdered donuts. Okay, cool. Following shooting day, do we have anything for breakfast? Yeah, we have a box of powdered donuts. And that box of powdered donuts was around forever. Um, <laughs> did, they at least, did they at least Taco give you guys Bell. milk? <laughs> Oh, no, we didn't have milk. The milk probably would have curdled and turned sour <laughs> out in the heat, out in the desert. Um, no, it was a great experience. It was a great learning experience. And I have to say for Steve Wang, if you were enthusiastic and you wanted to get involved and you had ideas, he'd just kind of let you go crazy. You know, why hold people back? You're not getting paid. You're working for free. You're spending your own money. Well, I'm going to let you do what the hell you want. And so... So that was where I connected with Brian Simpson because in that film I play Rasputin, which is the big pig guy with uh, the big tusks coming out of his mouth. So I was wearing a fat suit and I was wearing full makeup on my head with, uh, with dentures. And so I was doing martial arts fighting in a fat suit, you know, <laughs> on the beach. And, 
and then Brian Simpson, because he and Steve had bonded shooting Predator, Brian Simpson was there to help us do stunts. And we were doing wire work and fight scenes and fight choreography. And there's a scene in that film. Okay, so you'd be like one character in the morning, and then in the afternoon you're going to shoot like a ninja fight. And we had like four ninja costumes. So you'd be four ninja costumes and three of those guys would get killed and then the fight would move farther down the road and you'd get in the costumes again and get killed again in the next scene. So you were, you know, on any given day, you could be a couple of different ninjas, you could be a frog, you could be a pig man, you could be all these different things. There's a fight scene though where I'm a ninja and we just weren't getting the timing. And... You know, I have a little bit of martial arts training, not a lot, but I have enough that, you know, you know how to take a hit. And finally it was like, okay, we, we shot this like five times. We keep missing the cue. I'm just going to come at you, you know, try to pull the kick. Let's see how this works. And Johnny Psycho, who's playing uh, oh, Repo, um, he drills me. He side thrust kicks me just right smack in the chest and drops me. And you watch in the film, I can show you the scene, where I come I come at him and blah, he kicks me and I just dropped and curled up. And I stayed there for a couple of minutes and it was all good. I mean, I was fine. If you're gonna shoot a martial arts film, you need to be prepared to get hit once in a while. Um, but you know, the extended fight scenes that we were shooting out in the middle of nowhere, it's amazing nobody got killed. <laughs> um, people got bruised, people got their noses popped once in a while. Occasionally, you know, you got the wind taken out of you. But that, that film was a lot of fun. It was a, it was a great experience. It was, um, you know, it was, a, it was a lot of fun to work on. And I'm sorry it wasn't the other Les Claypool. I'm sorry it wasn't the Les Claypool you wanted it to be. <laughs> well, I, yeah, like I said, you've, you've made me lose all faith in the internet and IMDb. They actually have it listed as Les Claypool from Primus on, on here, too, on IMDb. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's yeah a, it's crazy. Yeah. Here's the crazy thing about IMDb. You brought up IMDb. Yeah. If it's Steven Spielberg, let's say... You don't mess with Steven Spielberg. I guarantee you, if you tried to go and change a credit on one of Steven Spielberg's IMDb listings, I don't think you'd get past you know the editing phase. I think they would stop it, they'd shut it down. I guarantee you, if you got into the IMDb and you tried to change or add a credit to a Steven Spielberg film, they would at least probably send it to Steven Spielberg or his company, they'd triple check it the odds of you being able to add something to Spielberg because those are the guys who are adding, they're putting the ads on IMDb. I mean, the movie trailers and the banners and stuff, it's the major studios who are funding all that and that's where they're getting their advertising from. Me and you, Kung Fu Rascals, I, I could go on, I bet you I could go onto the Kung Fu Rascals page and tell them 10 times, this is not Les Claypool from Primus. They might listen to me, they might pull it down, and then some fanboy could go on there and add it back in and say, Les Claypool from Primus, and they put it right back up. Because we're not, it doesn't matter. Right. I mean, it's nice that the IMDb is there, and it's nice that we can do stuff, but we're not the ones that are the driving forces of that. Like, they're much less concerned about the accuracy of the Kung Fu Rascals credits than they are taking care of the people who are, you know, giving them millions of dollars to run ads. So, right. just, you know, for what it's worth. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, to kind of, um, unless you have anything else you want to talk about acting-wise, I want to transition between the acting and a 
one of your personal projects? The only thing I would throw out, well, it depends, I guess, on what the personal project is. Um, I'll let you ask the question first. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna transition into uh, your fan film, The Dark Knight Returns. Okay, because The Dark Knight Returns is exactly what I was gonna bring up because it is a really interesting mix of the filmmaking and the behind the scenes and the in front of the camera. It, it combines those two things. Mm -hmm. And what's really critical about The Dark Knight Returns, a couple of things happened, which was, I made two feature films. I made a vampire film called Shadowland, which I wrote and directed, I was not in it. And then I made a feature film called Four Color Eulogy, which I co-wrote and directed with Jason Contini and Nicholas Hearn. And Nick and Jason were in the film. Again, I was not in the film, I wrote and directed. Um, and actually I shot Four Color Eulogy too, so I was a writer, I was a writer, director, editor, cinematographer. I was, you know, I was wearing four big hats on that one. Yeah. Loved it. Coming off of Four Color Eulogy, I felt really confident. Like, Four Color Eulogy, I'm proud of Shadowland, and Shadowland worked. But Four Color Eulogy was a smaller, low-budget project. It was comedy, drama. And it is, like, the film that was in my head is exactly the film that we made. Like, we nailed it. Whether people like the film or not, it's a whole different issue. What I had in my head, we were able to visualize and shoot. And I felt, coming off that film, I felt really confident as a cinematographer. So... There have been so many fan films. You've seen them. Uh, some of them are great. Some of them are god awful. Um, and there's a there's a guy here in the St. Louis area who had made a Batman fan film. And I was always kind of I don't know kind of envious. Like I can't believe he made this Batman fan film. I can't believe he had the guts to make this Batman fan film. When I came off of Four Color Eulogy and I was really feeling like I know what I'm doing. And we had we had all this equipment. We we had acquired cameras. We'd acquired lights and dollies and editing systems. We had a production company. We had all the toys. And it just struck me. I thought, well, hell, so and so did it. He made a Batman film here in St. Louis. The talent is here. I have all the toys. There's nobody to say no. I'm doing The Dark Knight Returns. And like the final day of filming on Four Color Eulogy, I turned to the crew and I said, my next project's going to be The Dark Knight Returns. And ever since I read The Dark Knight Returns when it was first released in the 80s, yeah, it'd be nice to do a three-hour epic movie of the whole thing. But what I really wanted to do was I wanted to do the first part of the story. I wanted to do, you know, retired Bruce Wayne. Stuff starts to go bad he returns, he comes out of retirement, he's Batman. And that first night back on the town as Batman. And I really had a vision for that and I really, really wanted to do it. So, you know, probably uh, early, we started prepping it, early 2015, we started shooting it. We shot 24 days over 17 months and we finished it and released it to the internet in November of 2016. And is it perfect? No. Has it got some cheesiness to it? Yeah, but I'm really, really proud of it. And, you know, trying to go to Warner Brothers and say, hey, cast me as older Bruce Wayne Batman, they're not going to give me the time of day. I'm nobody. My own production? There's nobody to tell me no. I wanted to play Bruce Wayne Batman, and I 
cast myself and nobody could say no. So I went for it and uh, it was just, it was a great combination of all the things, acting, filmmaking. Um, Acting and directing is exhausting, but on the indie level, thankfully I'm experienced enough now and I've made enough films that I know how to make the film, so I'm not worried about the behind the scenes stuff. It's just you have to have the time and the energy to be able to set the shot up, get the lighting right, clear your head, get in front of camera, remember what you're doing, and then do the scene. And thankfully, again, with digital, I could see the playback. I could, we could do a couple of takes and I could ask the cameraman, how's that? Well, I like this, I like that. And then I could look at playback and either say, yeah, that's good, moving on, or change this, change this, change this, and do another take. So um, I had wanted to do a Dark Knight film since, since the 80s. There was no way I could have done it and afforded it. There's no way I could have shot it in Los Angeles. They'd have never let me shoot on locations and steal stuff and get stuff for free in Los Angeles. But when I came back to St. Louis and I had all the gear and I knew St. Louis really well and I had connections in St. Louis, I knew I could shoot it in St. Louis. Um, and I wanted to do it cheap, but I wanted it to be good. So, you know, that's why we took the time we took to, to make it. See, I remember um, when this came out, when you, when you put it on the internet, I watched it back then, and then I watched it recently just so I can get, you know, just reused to see it when I just get it fresh in my brain. Um, sure. I'm a big Batman fan. I'm a huge comic book fan in general. Um, I thought you did a very fantastic job with this. I was very, very excited when I, got, when I watched it the first time and then just <laughs> as excited when I watched it again. I'd say you're probably, you're, you're within like my top three Batman people who have actually played Bruce Wayne in Batman. You know what would be like the ultimate thrill for me? The ultimate thrill would be is if somebody somewhere was doing a Batman panel and I got invited to sit on a Batman panel with any of the actors from the studio films. If I was on a Batman panel with like, you know, Michael Keaton and Christian Bale, that would be the end. That would be it for me. I could retire at that point. But <laughs> no, I appreciate you saying that because um, I really, you know, when I was 20 something years old and I wanted to do this, clearly I didn't see myself as Batman. I was 20 something year old kid. I was skinny. I was gawky. When I was in my 50s and I started making this film, I was like, I am this guy. I am older. I am beat up. I am cynical. I am freaking Bruce Wayne Batman. And that's, and that's what I thought when, when I looked, when I, when I seen you in the film, you had the mustache at the beginning, just like in the, right. like in the original comic. You know, I was like, okay, this, he is Bruce Wayne. So I could see it clear as day. And I was, like I said, I was excited to see this when, and just the way you, 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 what is the word? Um, you played Bruce Wayne. Yeah, personified. Per, yeah, you personified the character was just right on. And, and I appreciate that. Um, Sorry, I get excited when we talk comic books. <laughs> Corey, Corey's well, the comic book guy of the two of us. I'm not. <laughs> I watched this film this morning not knowing the storyline, not knowing anything about the comic. Okay, I, I was just fresh eyes seeing this. I'm a fan of the original TV series. I'm, sure. a, I'm a fan of the character as far as it's been portrayed in the movies. This, sure. this film held my attention better than any 
of the 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 you know the, the movies that have been out. It reminded me of the old school TV. It reminded me, you know, it, it gave me a new uh, look at the character of Bruce Wayne and Batman that I had never heard of or seen. I knew that it was based on a comic series that they had released, but not being a comic book guy, I had never read it, never explored that. Fantastic right. film, fantastic, and that's from somebody that doesn't follow comic books. No. What was it? I got to ask one one important question. What was it? What did it feel like to put the cow on? You know, um, this is you know all my things, all my past, all my history coming together. Um, I taught my wife how to do a head cast. She did the head cast. I sculpted the cowl myself. And oh made wow! My own mold. So it's my own. It's my own design based on the Dark Knight Returns comic book. I had made one before years ago out in Los Angeles, like just doing my own home projects. I had made a Batman cowl years earlier. Um, so I'd already done this once and my skills are better now. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do this again. I'm going to do it better. Um, you know, it's really incredibly cool. And if you have one that's made for you and the fact that it fits my head and it's form fitting to my face and nose, that's really empowering just to put that thing on. <laughs> the trade-off, though, is that I worked out really hard. I got in the best shape I could get into to do the film. And you learn the hard way that, you know, guys like Chris Evans and Henry Cavill, those guys are buff. They're in really great shape to begin with. You put spandex on anybody. I don't care who they are. You put spandex on people and you kind of turn them into a hot dog. It's like you're stuffing meat into a tube. <laughs> That's a great and, analogy. I love it. Well, it has the effect of smoothing you out. So if you're buffing your your hard, even when you when you put the spandex on, depending on how fitted it is to your and I didn't have seamstresses who could make a custom spandex suit to fit my body. But it had the it has a tendency of squeezing you and smoothing you out a little bit. So even as good a shape as I was in at the time, I still don't feel like I looked the way I wanted to in the Batman suit. I've since done another Batman suit that'll maybe see the light of day in a film. I don't know. But the, the Batman suit I've done since then I think is a little more forgiving. But I'm not in the shape that I was when we did the Batman film. For the Batman film, you know, I wasn't eating the sugar for a year and a half. I was exercising hard. Um, you know, some of it wasn't pleasant. I mean, I wasn't in the shape that Hugh Jackman is in, but Hugh Jackman talks about how unpleasant it is because all you're eating is chicken, chicken and, and broccoli. vegetables. Yeah. And you're, you're not drinking a lot of water because you don't want a lot of water weight. And he said the days he's shirtless in the movies, he's miserable because he's dehydrated and he has a headache and it looks beautiful. Um, and those guys stay in shape, but they don't look like that 24-7. And I still had to work and do, do jobs and make money and pay the rent. And so, you know, if I was doing this for hire in a real film and I had a trainer and I could spend six months on payroll getting ready for the film, that's different. But when the film was over, um, I haven't, like, you know, gone to seed and, you know, become 
fat man instead of Batman, but I'm not in the shape I was then, and maintaining that shape was just really hard to do. So if I did it again, even if I was in shape, I'd probably wear a muscle suit. I'd probably develop a muscle suit, at least for my upper body and my thighs, because it's just too damn hard to try and look like that in the costume. And you were talking about the the old TV show. Um, There's a certain amount of blowback from fans who they don't know the source material and they say, oh, the costume was stupid, it looks like Adam West. No, it looks exactly like the costume that was in The Dark Knight Returns, and people don't realize that. And in The Dark Knight Returns, he starts out in kind of the classic blue, gray, yellow costume, and as the story goes on, he transitions into the gray and black costume. And, you know, people will, oh, why didn't you do black? Why didn't you do armor? Why didn't you do it like this? Why didn't you do it like that? So because I was doing The Dark Knight Returns. I was adapting. The one thing I wanted to do, I wanted to stay true to that comic. I changed a couple of small things, but, you know, the man wrote us a nice comic book, do the comic book. Um, and so you said you weren't as familiar with the comics. Um, you probably have realized then, watching Dark Knight Returns, how much other filmmakers have cherry-picked the Dark Knight Returns, the Frank Miller version. You see, if you read all of the Dark Knight Returns, you see how much Zack Snyder, I'm just going to say ripped off from it, because some people would say, you know, well, it's a tribute. But I feel like Zack Snyder cherry-picked all the best parts out of the Dark Knight Returns comic book. He kind of ruined it for other people. Like, you know, someday somebody's going to say, let me make The Dark Knight Returns, and somebody's going to go, oh, Zack Snyder already made The Dark Knight Returns. No, he didn't. He stole the best parts of The Dark Knight Returns, but he didn't make The Dark Knight Returns. Like, the fight between Batman and Superman in uh, Batman v Superman is pretty much move for move out of The Dark Knight Returns. He just cherry-picked it and put it into a different film is all he really did. So so I get people occasionally saying, oh, you just you just stole this and you just stole that. And it's like, no, they stole this. They stole that. I'm doing an adaptation. Yeah. So. And, you yeah. know, com- coming from that, not knowing the source material and, and just going into it kind of, kind of a blind watch, it, to me, you had elements of the original... Uh, TV show in there, as far as, as I felt. And you had elements, it was like you dropped that into a more modern, you know, as far as technology-wise, where you could do some different effects with the the, the color scape and the lightning and all that. But it had moments, it had moments that had me cracking up, where, where you were in the fight and you were going through all the different scenarios that you could do to neutralize this attacker. Right. I was dying. Right. I was laughing so hard. I was like, okay, number three, good, number good. four. I'm like, this is great. But it good. it actually, uh, it felt like, to me, and this is this is you know, hopefully a, a compliment to what your, your vision was, it felt to me like I opened up a comic book and it came to life yep. and played out like, a, like watching panels from a comic book. That's what it felt that's like to great. me. That's great. That's good to hear. And, and honestly... Even though I storyboarded the whole thing, I also had a copy of Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns with me the whole time. And there were times where I was literally opening up the comic book, and then my friend Robert Clark, um, Robert Clark lit it. 
and Robert had a lot of fun with, you know, enhancing the blues, enhancing the yellows. He had a lot of fun. It's like we didn't want to, we didn't want to get wacky. We didn't want to get 1966 Batman, but we did want to kind of make things a little stark and try to frame these things, like you said, more like a comic book. So we were trying to pay tribute to the original comic book, but try to bring it into somewhat of a real world on a $2,500 budget. So we made that entire thing for $2,500. That's crazy. And that's part of why it took 17 months to film, because I couldn't afford to pay anybody. I couldn't afford to rent locations. And so uh, the big scene where um, the cops are chasing the bad guys and they go into the warehouse and Batman's underneath the walkway and he pulls pulls the guy down through the walkway. That whole scene, we had like eight or nine cast members. We had a couple of crew people. And when you're trying to get 10 or 12 people on the same page for free, so literally it took us like two months to get to the point where we could shoot that end scene because, you know, all these people want to do it, but so-and-so works these days, so-and-so works these days, so-and-so yeah, is yeah, off at this time, right. but so-and-so is not. So by the time you get everybody on the same page and all 15 people are off for two or three days in a row, yeah, it took us a couple of months for that schedule to come together. The opening scene with the race car going around the racetrack, mm -hmm. that was, like, that was the scene that I was worried about the most because how the hell am I going to do a race car on a racetrack and do it convincingly? And I went through everything. I went through CG, miniatures, uh, stock footage, and then... Just the craziness of, you know, you never know what you can get until you ask for it. My wife became friends with someone who was in the Sports Car Club of America. And she, you know, kind of flippantly one day said, hey, if you ever need race cars for a movie, let me know. And my wife stopped in her tracks and turned around and said, funny you should mention that. <laughs> That's awesome. And so we went and had some meetings with the Race Car Club of America. There's a big racetrack not far from St. Louis over on the Illinois side, the Gateway Motorsports Park. And so we went and met with the Race Car Club of America. What kind of race car are you looking for? What do you want? Oh, that sounds like this. Here's some drivers locally who might be interested in helping you. I went and met with a driver who built his own Formula 1000 race car. Um, and we, we were able to put it all together and we had like, so in the Sports Car Club of America, I tell, I tell you this because you, you can see how, you know, close we came to not getting it. The Sports Car Club of America like took over the Gateway Motorsports Park like one weekend every two months. So they had a, a scheduled, they had like a scheduled race in August and one in October. And those were the last two for the year. One in August, I went out to get footage, and we got, I don't know, I think we got into the first couple of laps of the first race, and the guy whose car we were featuring, the car malfunctioned, and he had a blowout, and something went wrong with the engine, and he had to pull off the race, and he couldn't race again for the weekend. So our first opportunity to shoot, we lost. And so we had another option, otherwise we would have had to wait until the following year, so... You can imagine if, like, the whole film rests on the opening race sequence and I've got one more chance to do it, but I don't know what the weather's going to be like. I don't know if it's going to be raining. I don't know if the car's going to malfunction again. So we shot 
all the race car stuff. And I had like multiple, I called in favors. I had friends with cameras come out. I put them on different spots in the track. We mounted GoPros to the race car. We did all this stuff. And I have to admit, right up there with Star Trek, The Next Generation, the, the afternoon when we finished and we got everything, my drive home, it was one of the most satisfying drives home of my life. Like, I stopped, I got a cup of coffee, and I just drove home with the music blasting, sipping my coffee, and I was happy because we got the racetracks. Everything else, the fight scenes, the effects, the bat cave, the, the car chases, all that other stuff, I know how to do that. The racetrack, the racetrack was the, the, the wild card. And once we had the racetrack, I was like, I got this. I got this movie. I can finish this movie now. Um, so yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's a, it's a it's a true testament to what you can do with if you have the passion to do it, if you have the drive. Yeah. It, it's it's a true testament. What did you have to go through to get the the rights to do it? I mean, was that a a, a, a challenge? Well, well, with a fan film, that's the thing with fan films. Um, provided you don't profit. I mean, theoretically, ideally, if you don't profit, you can do this stuff. Um, so we didn't have the rights to it. We just did it as a fan film, and we did it nonprofit. So we haven't sold copies. We don't. Um, there are some people who had music rights, and they're monetizing the video on YouTube because it's their music rights. But we don't monetize it. We don't sell copies. So we're under the radar. We're okay. And most fan films, like Sandy Calora's Batman Dead End, um, in Nightwing, um, all the biggest, best fan films, they all exist because they haven't monetized. When people monetize, that's when things start to get tricky. That's when studios take notice. And the other thing where studios take notice is sometimes fans get super close accidentally to something that the studios are trying to do themselves. And when you accidentally stumble too close to something, like the guys who made the kind of R-rated mature Power Rangers film, mm -hmm. Saban was in the process of rebooting the Power Rangers and Saban was thinking, we're going to do this a little darker, we're going to do this a little more serious. So when they saw this more serious, more dark version of the fan film, they went, oh, okay, that's, we got to pull that down. And then there was another guy who was working on a, uh, a Batgirl series and he was kind of getting into the territory that the studio was trying to get into. So he got hit with a cease and desist. Later on, the Saban people lifted the cease and desist on the Power Rangers fan film and said, now you can go ahead and repost it, you can do it again. Um, since I wasn't paying anybody and I wasn't raising too much money, you've probably heard about this crazy story. Um, there was a fan film called Star Trek Axanar. Yeah. And these crazy guys, they, they did something called Star Trek Axanar Prelude, where they raised a little bit of money and they did like a 20 minute preview. And then they wanted to do a, like a feature film about this Star Trek Axanar battle, this whole story. Well, their mistake was, is they raised like $600,000. They started paying rental on sound stages. They started paying crew people to build sets. They were getting 
actors who had actually been in Star Trek to play certain parts in Axanar. So the line was getting blurred. And the, like the director and the producer were saying, hey, we're not taking a paycheck. We're not getting paid. But they were paying a rental house. They were paying carpenters. They were paying construction people. They were paying art departments. They were paying people to make costumes. People were profiting off of an unlicensed Star Trek. And it got so huge that Paramount said no. So they allowed them to put out like an abbreviated version of the project. They were like, you can finish what you've started on this level, you can't make the whole film. And then there was an alien project, like somebody was pulling together sort of an unofficial sequel to Aliens and they got Carrie Han involved who played Newt, they got the actor who played Frost involved, they got a couple of people from the Aliens franchise involved in their film and they had raised like $100,000 and 20th Century Fox went, nope, you can't do this. You cannot cast people from our franchise, you cannot pay anybody, you can't do this. And so that project got squashed. So if you're nonprofit, if you can, you know, not aggravate the studio, you're fine. So we didn't, we didn't have any rights. Now, here's a, this is kind of a flattering story. It's a little scary. It's a little flattering. My friend Sandy Calora, who made Batman Dead End. Have you guys seen Batman Dead End? I have not. Okay, Batman Dead End is sort of, along with Troops and a couple of other fan films, Batman Dead End is one of the first big fan films that really caught on and it's a Batman fan film um, and my friend Sandy Calora made it Sandy made it and then he sort of used that as a pitch as a next step to get into commercial work and he had meetings with studios and he was trying to pitch them on Batman and superhero projects and none of it caught on and then you know the, the Nolan verse took place and all, all the modern era of Batman started happening and Sandy never got to do what he wanted to do. Sandy's a good filmmaker. He's, he's done a feature film of his own. He's done a lot of work. Um, I was talking to Sandy about The Dark Knight Returns, and I said, well, hopefully, you know, Warner Brothers won't get wind of it and Warner Brothers won't have any problems with it. And Sandy said, oh, they know about it. And I said, are you serious? He goes, trust me. He said, I have licensing agreements with Warner Brothers. I know the people at Warner Brothers. He said, just all I can say to you is they are aware of your fan film. He said, and that's all I'm going to say. So nobody has shut me down. Nobody has said anything to me. But according to Sandy, Warner Brothers knows it exists. Warner Brothers has kept an eye on it. So, again, I don't know whether to be terrified or flattered <laughs> i would say probably a little bit of both yeah they probably got a kid in an office somewhere who spends all day cruising the internet looking for stuff and then he probably reports to somebody and probably he found this movie and said oh hey guys there's a dark knight returns fan film um but at the, on your ago. film you've got that disclaimer at the beginning too it says yep. this has nothing to do yep. with warner brothers you know it's just this is yep. a fan film yeah, and, and so, I mean, and that was years ago, and I've never had any problems, So, but they're probably keeping an eye on it. They're probably keeping an eye on it and making sure I don't do anything crazy. Um, so, yeah, it's, but yeah, when Sandy told me that, my blood kind of ran cold and nothing ever came of it. So I'm like, okay, we're cool. Warner Brothers is fine with it. But it's very, very, very cool to know that somebody somewhere at Warner Brothers actually knows 
that this thing exists. I'd love to be, I'd, I'd love to think that there's a meeting happening somewhere where somebody said, you know, if some kid in St. Louis can do a Dark Knight Returns film for $2,500, why can't we do this? You know, I'd love, to, I'd love to think that that has happened in a meeting at some point. It probably hasn't, but that's my ego hoping. Because <laughs> it's not hard. You know, we're going through so much stuff with DC. You know, where it's the Snyderverse, it's not the Snyderverse. It's this, it's that, it's the other thing. Now James Gunn is in, and we're going to trash all this, and we're going to do all this new stuff. It's superheroes, man. It's Batman, it's Superman, it's Wonder Woman. Give me truth, justice, the American way. Give me a villain. Have a, have a, a world-conquering plot from the villain. Have the, bat, have the superheroes go after him to stop him. Give me Superman versus Lex Luthor. Give me, you know, good versus evil. It, it's not hard to do. And I just feel like sometimes, I don't know if you guys are Snyderverse fans or not, I just sometimes feel like it gets so convoluted so political, so plot heavy, and just you yeah. Know. There was a there was a lot of stuff in the Snyder version that didn't really need to be in the films. It's like he wanted to set in motion the plot for five films all at once. And I have a lot of friends who are very into Marvel and love Marvel or hate Marvel. Marvel, they have a plan, but they move one or two films, three films at a time. And Marvel has pivoted. If you watch the films, they go, well, people didn't really like that actor and that didn't really do very well, so let's recast and let's go in a different direction here. And, well, that plot line's really not caught fire, so let's, let's keep that character, but let's not follow that plot line. And they have the ability to shift from film to film. They're overall, like, it, you know, aiming for the end game and aiming for that huge arc and then finishing with this big epic film called Endgame, that was probably in the works for a long time. Oh, yeah. How exactly they got there, they had options. And that's one thing that I think Snyder did not do is Snyder tried to paint the picture of the entire universe, introduce all the characters, set up all the conflicts for everybody. And I just, you know, God, just give me, give me the Justice League let him fight dark side done moving on and yeah it's just it got so crazy and i don't like a lot of angst and a lot of infighting and soap opera with my superheroes yeah you know i I like batman to be dark i like superman to be happy and good and i just like him to go out and do stuff and yeah when it starts just getting so heavy i just I'm sorry. I can, I can turn on a political thriller on television and watch that kind of stuff. I don't anyway. But I grew up on Superman the movie. Yep. I grew up on Batman '66. I grew up on you know, the the, the Neil Adams Batman of the 1970s. That's the stuff I grew up on. So when you get into you know, post Nolan Snyderverse blue, depressed exposition heavy, I'm just uh, I'm done. Well, see, now I'm kind of disappointed they didn't put you in the Flash movie because they got they got Michael Keaton in there and um, who's the other guy that plays Batman? Uh, Ben Affleck. Yeah, Uh, Affleck's in it. So you're gonna have all these other Batmans. They should have put you in it for part of that multiverse. I think I would have a better chance of being in a multiverse story on the CW. I don't. You know that would still that would that would still work for me. 
right? That <laughs> <laughs> would work for me, too. That would work for me. I would be flattered beyond belief if I could be. Like I said, my dream would be to be on a panel with any of the best. Shoot, I'd settle for being on a panel with Val Kilmer at this point. <laughs> I would love to be... I would love to be on a panel with a Batman actor. I just think that would be freaking... If anybody acknowledged me in the same... Like you guys did. If anybody in the in the media acknowledged me in the same breath with any of those other actors, that would just be... That would be amazing. That would absolutely be amazing. Of course, that might be when I get the phone call from Warner Brothers, too. Who knows? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can't do any more panels. <laughs> I don't, I don't need to. Yeah. I've already done one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mr. We we heard that you uh, did a panel at Comic Con as uh, uh, as Bruce Wayne Batman. We have a sniper in a tower across the street. <laughs> we, just, we just wanted to tell you, yeah. Anyway, we've covered quite a bit of ground here uh, for your career, and uh, every, I think just about every aspect that you've done. Have we missed anything that you want to discuss? Um. No, I don't think so. Uh, other than to just say, you know. I'm really excited about the new film. Um, it's a total experiment. Um, I don't know when we're going to have a trailer ready, but I'm hoping to have it into film festivals later this fall, and it'll probably be available for streaming shortly thereafter. Um, Dark at the top of the stairs. And I'm, what's really interesting is at this point we're editing, so we're seeing if the experiment worked. And so far so good the experiment has worked because – you guys have seen The Dark Knight Returns, so you know that we can do something with very little. So when I tell you that we made a ghost story in a haunted house literally with two people, you might scratch your head and think, well, that's going to be shitty. But it's, I'm really happy with how it's coming out because Shades of The Dark Knight Returns, we knew what we wanted, we know how to get it, and we had plenty of time. So... You know, it wasn't like we had to hire a bunch of people and spend a ton of money. We just had to be patient and work hard. And so my wife and I, you know, and occasionally there were other people involved. There were one or two scenes we shot with other actors. We did go out to a couple of locations to shoot some establishing scenes. But just this ghost story set in our house and really basically one man dealing with stuff I'm really happy with it so far. I'm happy with how it's working. And I'm trying to scare people. I've made people laugh. I've done the superhero thing. I've done the horror thing. Now I'm just, I'm trying to make people jump a little. There's a couple of jump scenes in the film. There's nothing gory, but you know, there's, it's a ghost story. And so there are ghosts, there are jump scares, there are creepy shadows, there are things bumping in the night. And so, you know, maybe somewhere in the future we can, we can have another talk about darkest top of the stairs and how that got done but that's the thing i'm excited about right now that's the thing that's in the pike that's what's that's what's coming in the near future is is that movie so if if somebody that's listening here wants to dive a little deeper or if they want to keep up with with your projects where would they go to find uh information on that well i'm very active on Facebook, I'm, I'm not a Twitter guy, I'm not an Instagram guy, but I'm very active on Facebook, and I'm I'm Wyatt Weed on Facebook. I don't think there's any other Wyatt Weeds on Facebook. If there are, then make sure it's the one with you know Bruce Wayne in the photo standing there with a with a Batman shirt on. Um, that's me. But I, I post a lot on Facebook about 
what I'm doing, what we're doing, what we're working on. And I actually I have a website that I don't post as much information on, but all the stuff we've talked about, my resume, uh, portfolio pictures and stuff is whitelead.com. <laughs> um, I'm going to be at the show. I'm going to be selling autographs and merchandise and all kinds of fun stuff. But um, just to kind of get a taste of some of what's available, um, we have a website called imarriedtheboar.com. And it's I Married the Boar because my wife set it up and she married a predator. She married the boar predator. So the joke is imarriedtheboar.com. But that's got photos and posters and merchandise and stuff for sale. And most of that stuff we'll have at the show um, in April in Grand Island. So, um, yeah, but but Facebook is definitely the best way to stay in touch with me and see what I'm doing, see what I'm up to. I'm always posting about the movie projects. I'm always posting about when they'll be screening, where you can get them, and so forth. Okay, and we always like to uh, just kind of give... Uh, a closing statement if you want to say anything to fans if you want to say anything to aspiring uh, actors writers directors uh, you know, effects <laughs> artists anything that you want to close with the floor is yours well just to make sure that that we get this you know out there um you know i appreciate being invited to the grand comic fest uh the 21st to the 23rd. I'm really looking forward to that. And I, and I hope people who are listening to this come out, say hi. I'm really looking forward to meeting Kathy Coleman and Wesley Ewer from The Land of the Lost. I'm thrilled to death about that. Um, but please come out to the show. Say hi. Stop by the table and talk to us. Um, but to filmmakers, um, Every, everything tends to get in this world today. Everything tends to get so complicated. It tends to get so messy, so political. Um, and sometimes I think people feel like they can't do anything. Like they need approval. They need permission. They need to take a class. They need to get some continuing education. No. If you're a filmmaker, if you want to be a filmmaker, you just pick up a camera and start shooting. You know? Um, that's what I did. You know, I saw Star Wars, I picked up a Super 8 camera, I started shooting. I know there are kids today who pick up a cell phone or an iPad and they start shooting. And, you know, your first movies, they're not going to be good. My first films weren't good. So just get over that right now. It's like, I want to make a movie. I want it to be brilliant. I want it to be the Avengers. No, it's not going to be. You practice and you get started on it and you get going on it. And all you have to do is do it and you just start practicing and you get better and you start small I mean start on a tabletop do stop motion animation or do a film about your cat or do a film with your friends do a film in one room in your house just do a film don't try and go out and do a superhero film right out the gate just work up slowly you know keep it simple learn um, and I have to say to older people I've met a lot of older people who they get into filmmaking as like a second career. Like, I was a doctor my whole life, but I always wanted to be a filmmaker. I was a lawyer my whole life, but I always wanted to be a filmmaker. And because they were professionals first, they feel like, well, I'm a professional, I can make a film. Making a film is a whole different thing. Um, Don't jump in and spend $100,000 and try to make a feature film your first time out. Just practice and start. It's like, I wouldn't change from being a filmmaker to being a doctor and think I could do it just because I'm a filmmaker. So the fact that people are in other professions, I get that you're a professional and that you're an adult, but give yourself some time to learn. Give yourself 
learning curve. But films are weird because we've all seen them. We all like them. We all think we know what makes a good film. So we think we know what films are. But putting your hands on a camera and getting out there and making it, totally different thing. But anybody who wants to make a film, I encourage you, pick up a camera, start shooting. You don't know what you'll get, that's okay. Start editing, start cutting, start messing around with stuff. You know, do all the crazy things you always wanted to do with a camera and just see if it works and see what you get. We, that's what we had in the 70s. We experimented. You got a barn, I got a camera, let's make a film this weekend. I'd like to see more of that happen. I'd love for, to pe- see people just say, hey man, let's get together this weekend and make a movie. What are we going to do? I don't know, but let's make a movie this weekend. I'd love to see people do that. And that's it. That's it for me. But I have more. I have more nuggets of wisdom. Stop by my table at Grand Comic Fest and talk to me. I'll I'll, I'll tell you more of what I think. <laughs> well, that's awesome, and we really appreciate your time today, Wyatt. It, this has been a great conversation. We've learned a lot. We've had a lot of fun, and we are really looking forward thanks. to coming out and meeting you. Okay, awesome. No, thanks for having me on, guys. This is fun. Yeah, we appreciate it. Thanks so much. We'll see. We'll see you in a few weeks. Okay. All right. Okay. Thanks. Yep. Bye. like to binge watch tv did you know you could binge listen to podcasts head over to electronicmediacollective.com where they have podcasts for days you like podcasts about wrestling they have that do you like podcasts about tv and film they have that do you like podcasts about horror emc has that too do you like comedy do you like books guess what they've got you covered head over to electronicmediacollective.com Pick your favorite podcast today.